1: On the 21st of March, 2013, the Australian government delivered a formal apology to people affected by past forced adoption policies and practices. The apology was delivered by then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard in the Great Hall at Parliament House. The apology acknowledged the experiences of those affected, which created a lifelong legacy of pain and suffering. Today is the 10th anniversary of the apology and we're commemorating it here in Queensland with an event in Brisbane but we know that not everyone can make it to the anniversary event. So we're dedicating this episode of Adopt Perspective to reflect on the apology and are joined by none other than the woman who delivered it, the Honourable Julia Gillard. We're thrilled to have you join us, Julia.
0: Thank you. It's great to be with you.
1: You've described delivering the apology as one of the most moving and important moments of your prime ministership. Could you tell us more about your personal experience of delivering the apology and what it meant to you at the time? I remember it as a
0: very remarkable day. It doesn't feel like 10 years ago, but of course it is. And I remember it so strongly, partly because of the feeling in the room as I delivered the apology. I've given a lot of speeches in my lifetime. I gave a lot of speeches as prime minister, uh, but there are very, very few occasions where I had that sense of so much emotion in the room and as I was delivering the apology looking out on the faces you can tell how much it meant to the individuals that were immediately hearing it and even before uh, coming in to deliver the apology I'd sat that morning with a number of individuals um, including a friend of mine who uh, had served on the consultant group in the lead up to the apology and who has his own story and I listened to individuals tell me about their lives and the impact on them of forced adoption and you know that I think really stays with me uh, those sort of small intimate moments as well as the bigger scale uh, moment of being in the room.
1: Yeah You may not know this, but we use an excerpt from the apology in the intro of all of our episodes, because we know that many people have yet to hear it or to understand that it might pertain to their own experience. And I regard your delivery of the apology that day as one of the two most powerful speeches of my lifetime. And and you delivered both of them. I can imagine you can guess the other one. Um, I worked in communications for many years and I was shattered that there was a leadership challenge on the same day as the apology because I knew it would overshadow the event and bury it in the news coverage of the day, and and it did. Can you tell us about that day and how you felt about the two events colliding?
0: Yeah, I was shattered too. Uh, I had had a discussion the night before with a, a political colleague with Simon Crean, and I knew that there was trouble brewing and the potential uh, that he would um, trigger a leadership spill or discussion within the Labor Party and I had urged him uh, to not do anything the next day because of the apology Uh, But the cycle of politics being what it was, um, he did give a press conference that morning and that then triggered off those sort of internal political events of the day. And it was, uh, you know, for me, um, it meant uh, I had to come out of the apology and turn around and deal with those events. Uh, And I hadn't wanted to do that. I wanted to be able to just sit and reflect on uh, what we'd all done together uh, through the delivery of the apology. So I was denied that opportunity. But what was uh, much, much more upsetting than that was that I knew it would be overshadowed in the media coverage and that that wasn't fair or right because it, you know, a big part of its purpose was to uh, be words of comfort and healing for the communities most directly affected, but for it also to be words of education uh, for the whole nation because there would be, you know, millions of people who'd never uh, in their lives thought about the issue of forced adoptions. And I had hoped that you know, through the news coverage, they would prick up their ears and they would think there's something here that I should think through or learn about or talk to my family about, try and get to grips with. Um, And the fact that the coverage was overshadowed meant that that message got through to fewer people. Now, in the 10 years since, obviously, um, you know, an, an apology like that is not just one day or just one news cycle, Um, and the work that you do and that so many others do um, helps to um, bring uh, those words and the consideration of forced adoption and the needs of the communities affected uh, back into our conversation. But I know uh, it would have been easier for for you and for so many like you if uh, it hadn't been overshadowed on that day.
1: Yeah. In 2020, I interviewed Nahum Mushin, who many listeners will know as a family, former family court judge who chaired the forced adoption apology reference group, and I asked him about his recollections of that day, and he spoke so highly about how you gave no hint of what it was about to transpire behind the scenes and When the reference group met with you that morning, he said you were fully focused and present and you even included some of the things that you were told in that meeting in your speech a short time later. So this isn't a question. However, I just wanted to thank you for that and assure you that your efforts were visible and appreciated by those in attendance. And even now, when I rewatched the apology in preparation for this interview, I could see it as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you.
0: But today, we also listen to the words and stories of those who have waited so long to be heard. Like the members of the reference group, personally affected by forced adoption, who I met earlier today. Lizzie Brew, Catherine Rendell and Christine Cole told me how their children were wrenched away so soon after birth. How they were denied basic support and advice. How the removal of their children led to a lifetime of anguish and pain. Their experiences echo the stories told in the Senate report, stories that speak to us with startling power and moral force. Like Linda Bryant, who testified of the devastating moment her baby was taken away. She said, when I had my child, she was removed. All I saw was the top of her head. I knew she had black hair. So often, That brief glimpse was the final time those mothers would ever see their children. In institutions around Australia, women were made to perform menial labour in kitchens and laundries until their baby arrived. As Margaret Bishop said, it felt like a kind of penance. In recent years, I have occasionally passed what was then the Medindi Maternity Hospital, and it generates a deep sadness in me and an odd feeling that it was a Dickensian tale told about someone else. Margaret McGrath described being confined within the Holy Cross home, where life was, to use her words, harsh, punitive and impersonal. Yet this was sunny post-war Australia, where we were going to the beach and driving our new Holdens and listening to the music of Johnny O'Keefe. Friends, as the time for birth came, these babies would be snatched away before they had even held them in their arms. Sometimes, consent was achieved by forgery or fraud. Sometimes, women signed adoption papers whilst under the influence of medication. Most common of all was the bullying arrogance of a society that presumed to know what was best. Margaret Nonis was told she was selfish. Linda Nagata was told she was too young and would be a bad mother. Some mothers returned home to be ostracised and to be judged. And despite all the coercion, many mothers were haunted by guilt for having given away their child. Guilt because in the words of Louise Greenup, they did not buck the system or fight. And friends, the hurt did not simply last for a few days or weeks, This was a wound that would not heal. Kim Lawrence told the Senate committee, the pain never goes away, that we all gave away our babies. We were told to forget what had happened, but we cannot. It will be with us all for the rest of our lives. Carolyn Brown never forgot her son. She said, I was always looking and wondering if he was alive or dead, From then on, every time I saw a baby, a little boy, and even a grown-up in the street, I would look to see if I could recognise him. For decades, young mothers grew old, haunted by loss, silently grieving in our suburbs and towns, and somewhere, perhaps even close by, their children grew up, denied the bond that was their birthright. Instead, they lived with self-doubt and an uncertain identity, The feeling, as one child of forced adoption put it, that part of me is missing. Some suffered sexual abuse at the hands of their adoptive parents or in state institutions. (laughs) Many more endured the cruelty that only children can inflict on their peers. The words, your mum's not your real mum, your real mum didn't want you. Your parents aren't your real parents, they don't love you. Taunts vividly remembered decades later. For so many children of forced adoption, the scars remain in adult life. Phil Evans described his life as a rollercoaster ride of emotional trauma, indescribable fear, uncertainty, anxiety and self-sabotage in so many ways. Many others identified the paralysing effect of self-doubt and a fear of abandonment. It has held me back, stopped me growing and ensured that I have lived a life frozen. These words have been said. I heard similar stories of disconnection and loss from Lee Hubbard and Paul Howes today. The challenges of reconnecting with family, the struggles with self-identity and self-esteem, The difficulties with accessing records, challenges that even the highest levels of professional success have not been able to assuage or heal. And friends, neither should we forget the fathers, brothers and sisters, grandparents and other relatives who were also affected as the impact of forced adoption cascaded through each family. Gary Coles, a father, told me today of the lack of acknowledgement that many fathers have experienced. How often fathers were ignored at the time of the birth. How their names were not included on birth certificates.
1: The report estimated that there are as many as 150,000 adoptions between 1951 to 1975 and 250,000 from 1940 to the present day, because every adoption involves two biological parents, two adoptive parents, other immediate and extended family and the adoptive person themselves, as well as future generations it is impossible to know how many people have been affected by forced adoption policies and practices. And yet I feel that forced adoption doesn't have near as much community recognition as some other prominent issues that occurred around the same period. Why do you think that is?
0: I'm not entirely sure. I think, uh, you know, there's A lot, uh, you know, if we look back at the uh, last 10 years and even the, uh, you know, 10 years before that, because the apology didn't just, um, you know, obviously it was a day, but the lead-up processes and the visibility of the issue and the campaigning around the issue had happened for many, many years beforehand. If we contemplate um, that period, there has been... So much uh, to take community attention. Uh, and I think because of that, because of the very crowded agenda, it can be very difficult for um, any one issue to get the amount of attention that it should. Uh, Inevitably, I think the depth and breadth of the Royal Commission into child sexual abuse in institutional settings meant that there was a lot of uh, focus on that work uh, and um, you know, and, and that's a good thing, you know, absolutely um, a, a good thing. And I think we're a better nation because we have focused on how to keep children safer uh, from sexual abuse. But I think, you know, as, you know, people can only hold so much in their heads, there can only be so much in the media discussion, in the community discussion. It therefore has been harder uh, for uh you know, this incredibly important issue of forced adoption to to have the space that it needs. That, in my view, just means we've got to continue the conversation uh, rather than look back and ask, uh, you know, why wasn't there more airtime or visibility, sort of look forward and think uh, what can we do to enhance community understanding And that's why I think marking this 10-year anniversary is incredibly important. Um, It's, you know, really the 10-year anniversary for, you know, the national moment. Yes, I was the person who delivered the apology, but it was a national moment of saying sorry. And for us to put the spotlight on that and our responsibilities as a whole nation at this time, I helped. I think, helps bring the issue back to the fore.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, being one of the most recognisable women in Australia, I imagine you are frequently stopped as you move about. Um, since the apology, have others uh, shared with you their personal reflections about the apology and what it meant to them? And I just wondered if any of those stood out to you?
0: Uh, yes, I've I've had many conversations, actually, um, uh, because, you know, people do uh, recognise me. So I do get Stopped in the street, stopped at airports, stopped in (laughs) shops, you know, all of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, inevitably, because of the circumstances, you're not necessarily in um, a very private space, often in a sort of bustling space, a lot of people around. Um, their hurried conversations. And so I feel sometimes like I don't get the full depth of the personal story, but people want to come and tell me that it mattered to them and they will give me a quick snapshot of um, you know, where they were, uh, when they heard the apology or when they first um, heard it, which was not necessarily on the day, um, what it's meant to them. Uh, you know their family story how they've looked for healing and connection in their family so I, I always very much enjoy that um, you know learning um, learning about it all through someone else's eyes
1: yeah on the day of the apology you commented that it is important for a nation and its people to reflect and acknowledge past wrongdoing how do you see the apology or this apology as being important in the history of our nation
0: yeah, I think uh, for um, you know, for the whole nation, uh, it's you, you only really um, get to grips with the depths of pain and trauma caused when you acknowledge it and apologise for it. Uh, when you actually hold it up and say, we recognise this now and we recognise it in its full force, Uh, what happened to people and we're prepared to acknowledge the accountability that we all collectively have around it that's what the apology shapes and so or is the symbol of Um, and so I think that's that's the resonance of it but but the words don't you know, somehow magically translate into to fixing everything. Of course, they don't. Uh, what they do is they uh, symbolise that kind of recognition and accountability, and then it needs to be put into action over time as people. Um, hear the the stories of individuals, their reflections, reach out to affected communities. You know, we do what we can to uh, connect people, to support people, uh, to acknowledge uh, their individual trauma uh, in the way that we've acknowledged the trauma broadly.
1: Yeah. 10 years on, what do you consider to be the key messages that were contained within the apology and their importance as we move into the future?
0: I think the key messages really are um, we, we know, you know, we, we've seen, we've heard, we know that this happened. Uh, no more averting eyes or denials or minimizations or anything like that. You know, we, we've seen, we heard, we know that it happened. Uh, we uh, recognize how traumatic it was and how the waves of that uh, go out and impact people. Um, you know, at the time and then through time, you know, and you you summarised it a little bit earlier just how many people end up affected um, and that lives with them for all of their lives. It's not something that, that disappears. So we understand um, how broad scale all of that is and we recognise a, a responsibility to try and work with people Um, who have experienced that kind of hurt uh, to find pathways to healing. I think that's what the key messages of it are.
1: Yeah. Um, While a great deal has been achieved since the national apology, there is still more that needs to be addressed moving forward. And in Queensland, there are currently calls for redress, integrated birth certificates and a simpler process to discharge adoptions, amongst other things. Um, I know you've stepped away from politics now, however, I wonder if I might ask your thoughts on what still needs to be addressed moving forward, or if you have any advice to those who are advocating.
0: Yeah, I think it's, you know, what's probably best for me is uh, the advice to those advocating. I mean, no longer being uh, directly in Australian politics, I leave the decision making uh, to those who are there today. But I think in terms of approaching those who are there today, uh, the the best advocacy is, you know, the sort of authentic stories that come from the heart. And, you know, whilst um, all good politicians always want the facts and the figures and the statistics and, you know, we all want to make policy based on evidence, uh, in in this area of forced adoptions, I think, also hearing from individuals about their lives and what it's meant for them is incredibly important. And, you know, I know as we prepared as a government um, for the delivery of the apology, of course, we had, you know, the best possible public service research and all the rest of it. But if for me, uh, for the others who are involved, what we really carry with us is the times that we sat quietly and talked to individuals. So, you know, um, if if the advocates involved can bear that in mind, the force of that sort of truth-telling, I think, really does make a difference.
1: Thank you. And look, thank you so much for your time today and your involvement in this significant event that has contributed to the healing of so many On the day of the apology, you acknowledged the strength and advocacy of those who spoke truth to power, and you commented that the apology was a direct result of these efforts. We're pleased to report to you that many of our clients and stakeholders have felt a significant shift in their emotional journey over the last 10 years as a direct result of of feeling heard, consulted, and supported. So thank you.
0: Thank you. That's uh, lovely to hear. I'm I'm, uh, truly touched to hear that.
1: Julia Gillard, thank you so much for your time today as we commemorate the 10th anniversary of the National Apology for Forced Adoptions. Do you have a final message for those around the country who are at events or privately reflecting today?
0: Uh, I think my final message would be uh, 10 years on is uh, the right moment uh, to stop and think back to the day. Uh, But I am a big believer that these moments also have to be a time when we gather new energy uh, for the campaigning and advocacy to come. Uh, So I think a reflection back, but also thinking forward about what people are going to do next.
1: Yeah, thank you. And we'll put up some relevant links about the forced adoption, about forced adoption and the national apology on our podcast notes page. So be sure to check them out before we say goodbye do you have a story that you'd like to share with us if so jump onto the main podcast page of the jigsaw queensland website and complete the prospective guest form that you'll find there and note that adopt perspective can be listened to by people all over the world bye for now thanks for listening to the adopt perspective podcast if you'd like to find out more go to the podcast page on www.jigsawqueensland.com and you'll find a wealth of information and resources on the website. If you reside in Queensland, you can reach Jigsaw Queensland's Forced Adoption Support Service on toll free 1800 210313. Or you can call Jigsaw on 07 3358 666. If you live in another state of Australia, you can still call the Forced Adoption Support Service number and your call will be answered by the Forced Adoption Support Service in the state that you're calling from. In every other state, Relationships Australia operates this service. A big thank you to Matt Sparrow for composing and recording our original theme music. Until next time, I'm Jo Sparrow saying farewell from Adopt Perspective, a podcast for anyone affected by adoption. Thank you.